Hello, and welcome to this hour which I am calling Shite and Mouth Full of Tords. This is a Middle English proverb which roughly translates as to fill one's mouth with shit. But as a footnote, I came across this proverb on the Middle English compendium when I was searching for the Middle English term for to shit, which is shiten. Um, but in terms of this proverb, I can't find the primary sources where it occurs or any interpretation of the proverb, not even on the Middle English compendium. So, I mean, I'm guessing it to mean the equivalent of talking rubbish or talking shit. Who can say? But this is what I shall be doing. Filling my mouth with excrement, spewing excrement with you, for you, gentle listeners. And a trigger warning before we go any further, I'm going to be talking a lot about food practices, laxatives, disordered eating, including restriction and purging and laxative abuse. There's frequent reference to fat phobic cultural beliefs. So if any of this is going to be triggering, then please do not listen any further. So what you're going to hear is some work, some research and some ramblings mostly related to constipation and laxatives within a Western European history. It will be a journey across time and space, moving into crip time, medieval conceptions of time is cyclical rather than progressive, anti-capitalist time, against chrononormativity, and a lot more crip time. And the journey through space, well, I mean, I do mostly ground my work within a Western European history as this is the world I was raised in and one whose cultural legacy I've internalised and I carry it within my tissues. But I must state this explicitly, not to claim this as a singular or universal perspective, but rather to underline that this cultural upbringing is highly specific and the worlds that I describe are just some among many. And the spaces move from interior to exterior, the micro to the macro, deep into the marrow and the more of the gut and outward from there. And the following hour is structured overwhelmingly by one work, which I've broken up into three acts, with interludes in between to introduce other works and research and ramblings. And during this work, I want you to think of it as a wash of sound as much as a narrative text. So you can engage with it, dip into it and dip out of it. This structuring text is called It Is Proven and it's based on the Physicians of Midvi, which is a medieval Welsh herbal medicinal text. And the text is broken up into numerical sections and each section is based on a specific cure. So I've isolated all of the gut related cures. There's a lot of laxatives in there, which I mean is weird because I've read quite a few compendiums from a similar time. I don't say that to be an arsehole, like, oh, I've read a lot, but just as a point of comparison, there's a lot more laxatives in there than I found in any other text. So anyway, the text that I've written, the language is anachronistic, it moves between Middle English, which you can't always actually necessarily hear, because a lot of that is differentiated by the spelling and it's just different phonetic spellings of words such as sickness or sickness so you can kind of differentiate there's some victorian english to reference the time that the text was translated um 
Some 18th century slang, notably balsamic injection, to refer to ejaculation, which is quite nice. Some Renaissance medicinal beliefs, some contemporary references. Reading is an act of time travel. It's a moment of intense contact between the worlds of original authors, translators, readers. So I really wanted to create this indeterminate non-place through the time travel of language. And as I mentioned earlier, I've been thinking about medieval conceptions of time as cyclical. I apologise if we've spoken recently. I've probably said this phrase to you because it's something that's playing over and over in my mind. So I apologise for the repetition. Although now I think about it, it actually seems fairly apt, given that I'm talking about the cyclical nature of time. But, anyway. The primary source that I've used for the text, The Physicians of Midfi, it obviously has no narrative with a beginning, middle and end, because it's a medicinal cure book. So I've been thinking about how narratives was formed through and ingesting the aggregate of a text. Nothing really happens, but time kind of does move forward, or it moves in some direction, or many directions. And a final warning, this is a protagonist who has very disordered ideas about food, eating, and their own body. So there is a lot of internalised fat phobia throughout the text. I do not react well to the nightshade family. Face and more swell and tighten to a point of pain. And I remind myself, do not eat tomato. Do not eat potato. Do not eat aubergine. Do not eat pepper. And yet still I am drawn to these plants. I want of them. I lust for them. There was a time when I would eat almost nothing save tomato. I would consume, of a day, two pounds of the bleed. This would not be in one sitting, no, for I would, throughout the day, eat one, two, three, a gentle snack. The thought would occur, a tomato. This thought would then build in the mind, till I could no longer suppress it, and I would go, eat, graze throughout the day. I did not observe mealtimes. There were no meals. There were only these foul fruit. And do you know, since then I am unable to ingest them, an intolerance born through oversaturation. Today I eat tomato with salt and the more hardens. It bloats outwards. It is difficult to concentrate. So discomforted am I. Clothing is impossibly constricted. I boil duckweed and goat's milk and bathe the warm lotion on the stomach intermittently throughout the day. And I do curse myself for my weakness. 1.103 I fear constipation above all other ailments. I have not passed stool in three days, and feel no urge to. It is no dread. Excrement piles up in the colon, slowly hardening into a rock. Feeling the creaking stasis of the gut, 
I boiled duckweed in a pot, then cast it into a pan, and fry it with a quantity of blood and butter. This I eat hot, and await its effects. 1.10 nin. The constipation is still felt. Five days with no stool and no abdominal cramping. Drink I great amounts of fluid to no avail. Do you know I astound myself with the quantity of fluid I can ingest? Some years prior to this day, I would take no food during daylight hours. Around midday, it was my particular wish to sit and drink a two pints of hot fluid within the space of an hour, and then repeat this operation at dusk. It warmed me, when the flesh was unable to warm itself, and it filled me, when I was not filling myself. On this day, I ingest similar greet quantities of liquid, though in a less concentrated time period, instead staggering my intake of sips across the hours of daylight. Still, this does not ease the stasis. Rather, it seems to contribute to it, sitting like a lake atop the sticky, compacted mud lining the intestines. Nothing moves. Thus I take salt and second milk in equal parts. These I place on the fire in an evaporating dish until it has reduced into a congealed, waxy mass. From this unguent, I make suppository cakes and insert one into the rectum to await its effect. 1.117 Surfeit I cannot quite explain why I have frequent like to eat so much that I feel quite nauseous. This urge takes over approximately every other day, and I often will eat to the point of extreme distension of the maw, then purge the contents violently. To inflate, then deflate. I need this sensation. This evening, I eat seven bananas and feel extremely sick, and yet the bananas will not rise through the esophagus. I cannot purge them. This is abhorrent. The inability to purge is the absolute worst fear of one who will purge. I boiled duck meat in goat's milk. It had been that on sun and day, I would eat great quantity of banana and porridge. Then, a mere two hours later, a great quantity of salmon and wheaten bread, swiftly followed by great quantity of chocolate brownie and raspberry, and make myself quite ill throughout modern day. It was only when I was prescribed the contraceptive pill and the appetite increased quite fourfold, that I desired to eat this amount and more every day, and I knew the flesh would fatten if the appetite gained maestry. Lo, apprehend I a violent methodology of purging. It is not a prescription I would recommend or share with you. This eventide, though, it does prove ineffective, and the bananas remain stuck. I let them be. I digest them, much as I loathe digestion. I take a turnip and boil it in goat milk, and take gentle sips until the stomach has quelled. 1.122 The bowels will not loosen. They are obstinately firm and static. I am quite at the end of my tether, 
knowing that I must continue Eaton in order to promote peristalsis, and yet not wishing to add to the compounding mass of shit accruing in the moor. When I lie on my bed, I can feel a thick rope of excrement extending up the transverse colon. Thistles. Thistles as the thistles on the enamelled brooch my mother would wear, the purple tarnished and scuffed. I remember not her wearing this brooch. I only remember it sitting in her jewellery box, and should I chance to remove it, she would find it in the hand and she would tell me, this is the first piece of jewellery your father did buy for me. I boil the roots of small thistles that grow in the woods. These roots of thistles I boil in water. This water I drink with relish. 1.123 I am uncertain if I have had an inflammatory response to the nightshade, or if I have gained fat on my flesh. But I will tell you that I gained quite four pounds overnight, much to my disgust. This flesh is repellent to me. I've begun drinking the juice of fennel. 1.177 I try to restrain the appetite, for I must curb these urges towards surfeit. Fain would I live long, and a cycle of binging and purging may cut short my years without consent. I have heard that ongoing irritation of the throat may cause a canker, or still a rupture through the esophagus into the flesh beyond. I do not wish for death, or to have my death discussed in papers and on websites in lascivious terms. My great fear is autopsy. My great fear is to have the contents of the bowel poured over and discussed. My great fear is that I should be defined by a base and shameful death, a death by overeating, a death that would be discussed with disgust. And so I shall restrain the appetite, and eat slowly. I shall not ingest to the point of distension. This too may aid in evacuation. The irregularity of the bowels is troubling to me. I must work towards a daily evacuation of substantial volume. 1.188 Trow that this lust for fullness is a moral impunity and might represent something sexual. Trow that I wish to reach a crescendo of food like the crescendo of balsamic injection. I am attempting Eaton and to allow some appetite to remain. Today, I eat sparingly, allowing myself to maintain a sense of hunger even after each repast. I drink nothing with my meal, and throughout the day, I drink sparingly, choosing only the coldest water I can obtain. After Eaton, I take a brief walk in well-sheltered and level ground. Tonight, I shall sleep well, but not too much. I must give pause between my meal of eventide and my bed, for it is known that sleep before food will make a body thin, while sleeping after will make one fat. These shall be the rules moving forward. Each two small meals a day to remain hungry after the meal has passed. Drink nothing with each meal. Sip only little throughout the day from the coldest source I might obtain. Forbid these chemical sweeteners, 
which I will use to make drink more palatable. I fear they aggravate the more. Do make enough time between meals that I might feel empty. This I shall sense from my hunger and the thinness of my saliva. Sleep, some time after my final repast, deeply, but not for too long. A lot of my work does stem from a personal narrative, particularly around my health, but I do use this as an entrance into exploring a Western cultural history of specific narrative strands, and all of my work is a fictionalisation. I may use I, I don't always use I, but that isn't to say that I am speaking a personal I and doing some embarrassing overshare that a, it feels like a very gendered conception that I would always accidentally be revealing too much personal information. So I had an eating disorder for some time, which I'm quite open about, um, not necessarily proud of, but just feel it's important to disclose my perspective. Um, and for five years of this, I abused laxatives quite heavily until I made myself really quite seriously ill. So I feel quite strongly angry against the laxative industry um, and my laxative of choice was senna based and markets itself as gentle and natural i still hear the adverts on the radio occasionally um, it actually caused severe and partially irreparable damage to my guts uh, underlining the fact that plants are often quite toxic um, herbalism is often posited as an alternative to the canon of Western allopathic medicine, which is true. But it's also true that in the West, since the 16th century, there is an industry of herbal cures that has defined itself as the benign shadow of harsh medical intervention. The gentle balm of plant cures, which is a lie, we all know, because plants can be incredibly potent. Around the 16th century, a lot of doctors were using mercury quite frequently as a cure and so a lot of medicinal patent medicines sprung up which advertised themselves as something which would be less toxic than what was given to you by a doctor who can say whether or not they were or not as a lot of the recipes don't actually exist anymore but the point is this isn't a critique of herbalism as a practice this is a critique of the herbalist industry that produced itself, a very specific capitalist agent. And here is an advert from 1733 for Grana Angelica, or the true Scots pills. They exceedingly comfort and strengthen the stomach. They restore the lost appetite. They purge choler and melancholy, but chiefly phlegm and waterish matter. They cleanse the same of all putrid, gross and thick humours. They comfort the entrails, open obstructions, and disperse all the pain of these places. They strengthen the head and all the senses, but chiefly those of hearing and sight, whose weakness and pain they remove. They help the giddiness thereof, and the megrim. And as they comfort and purge the stomach, so they do the like to both head and heart, and have this excellent faculty, that being mixed with other physic, they correct its malignity, and make it unhurtful to the stomach, and are therefore to be preferred to all other gentle and easy medicines. 
They kill and choke all worms that are bred in the bellies of children, big-bellied women that are bound in the belly, and of men. Yea, not anybody that frequently useth these pills can breed worms at all. You may use them at your pleasure, whether late or early, or any hour of the day, before meat or after meat, or in time of feeding, but being taken in time of supper, they defend the head, as we have said, from those vapours and fumes that ascend to it in the night. They are familiarly taken in time of meat, without trouble to the mind, or harm to the body, and not any hindrance to your business. The dose is from three to seven, nine or eleven, according as their constitution is, some weak constitutions to take but one or two, and that three or four times a month, or a week, as necessity, or the temper of the body shall require. They give not many stools, neither do they work violently, nor suddenly. They open the belly twelve hours after they are taken, sometimes in shorter or longer. And with some habits of the body in the first dose operates not at all, although the dose from three upwards, taken some days together, operates with the greatest facility, those various operations arising from the disposition of the stomach and the body, and they may be used without any special care of rules in diet, whether in summer or winter, in frost or thaw weather, without any inconveniency to ensue thereupon. So these pills weren't just marketed as a laxative, but their overwhelming effect is believed that it would have been a laxative, and there are plenty of medicines of a similar ilk which marketed themselves as a general panacea and would cover all manner of ills, mostly because constipation was in increasingly beginning to be believed as the stem of all illness. But I'm kind of fascinated by the herbalism industry, uh, this paradox of an industry which implicitly markets itself on its own inefficacy. Um, and like I said, this is herbalism as an industry, not herbal remedy as a practice. Herbal remedy as a practice has existed as another universe of conceiving the body as an alternative to allopathic, Western, scientific, rationalist medicine. And it has its roots in the West in a time when cure was more often something than not that was produced at home. And so it's important to highlight that my ambivalence is not the use of plant medicine, which offers a very real alternative and a very real conception of health um, and a very necessary counter to the hegemony of Western allopathic medicine and the hubris of scientific rationalism, which always believes itself to be an inherent truth and everything that exists outside of this needs to be redeemed by proving itself. I'm specifically ambivalent about herbalism as a capitalist industry. Two point two two. When I go to toilet, I pass only tiny pebbles after much straining, and little else emerges. It does not represent my daily intake, and I fear that if I do not pass a substantial stool soon, the thick and unwieldy serpent of shit in the colon will begin to extend into the small intestine. There is, happily, approximately 25 feet of this organ for it to traverse before it might creep into the maw, 
But if nothing happens, then perhaps, in a year, I will begin spewing excrement. When I would take pills derived from the leaves of the senna plant, I would never experience this aggregate of shit. To my infinite, earthly delight, there would be a direct correlation between input and output. I might eat my one meal of the day at eventide, then after a good sleep of eight hour, I would evacuate a liquid in which the foods were suspended, barely digested. Sooth, this time was a time of much pain to me, much sickness. Fain I shall never revisit it, but still I sometimes wish I could be this empty again. These tiny pebbles are mere chips in the enormous boulder residing in the rectum, a compounding of any number of meals of the days prior. I take a newly laid hen's egg and remove the white. Into the shell, I scoop unsalted butter to mix with the yolk until the shell is full. This I warm, then eat. This shall become a regular part of my regimen until I feel colonic spasming. 2.96 I cannot express to you my discomfort. I feel now a spasming. An excrement begins to emerge, but it has hardened to a point that it is impossible to pass through the rectum, and so it gives me pain. I take a pennyworth of stibium and grate it as fine as flour. Though this process gives me grief, for metal will take some time to grate, even one so soft as stibium, or antimony as you may call it. This powder I mix with a pint of sound ale, and warm. I eat nothing in the morning, and drink only this liquid. Quite half the hour has passed, when a quart of posset do I drink her. I thence proceed drink her again, and once more for good measure, this is instructed. Later, I warm spring water, put some good butter and honey into it, and drink of the draught in two sittings. This consists my day. 2.97 When I ended my regimen of senna laxative, I was quite sickly. The recovery was slow, though I did visit a beach upon whose sandy edges plenty bushes of buckthorn grew. I harvested the berries, and these I keep in the freezer for such times as the present. For today, the entire gut is static, and I seek the mollification of the rock of shit. So I express the juice of buckthorn, and mix two spoonfuls with a draught of good alewort. This drink I, and await its effects, willing the bowels to loosen. Still they remain obstinate, still they remain static. Thusly I drink another draught without the buckthorn. I manage to force out a thin, tapering worm of soft excrement, perhaps pass through the spaces around the hardened stone lodged in the rectum. And so I eat some warm oatmeal gruel made with spring water, mixing it with some honey, butter, and unsifted wheaten bread. Over the next nine days, I shall follow this regimen thrice. I hope that the tapering worm shall grow to a fattened, thick and muscular snake, which coils out of the rectum and lands in the toilet bowl like a triumphant best. 
if the best does not make its presence known. I shall lead a further nin days on milk, food, and wheat and bread. 2.98. The abdomen is distended. I take a handful of the leaves of damask roses, boil them in the wort of good ale, and this I drink her. I shall follow a regimen of milk food and wheaten bread for a further nin days. 2.99. Today I have result. After some straining for quite thritty minuten, I manage to dislodge a plug of hardened shit to the shape of a bulb of garlic. This is followed by a fat, soft rope quite two inches in diameter, and my relief is indescribable. I shall tell you how I gain mastery over the gut. Two days prior, I took honey and the juice of the fruit of buckthorn in equal quantity. I boiled these together over a slow heat and kept in a well-covered glass bottle. Today, I take three spoonfuls of this liquid. Fruity minute afterwards, I drink a hearty draught of the wort of strong ale. It is not another thritty minute until I feel colonic spasming, a dearly beloved friend from a distant past. Sitting on toilet, the pain of passing the bulbous plug is quite extreme, such that I worry I should tear the rectum, but I do not. I have only enough time to turn and observe its form in the water. Betimes it is preceded by a soft and warm evacuation of what must be almost the full contents of the descending colon. My solace is greet. 2.106 I have been experiencing a humoral flatulence which has been weakening both body and mind. My mother once told me, I do not pass wind. She instilled in us a belief that to pass wind was a moral failing and a failing of femininity in addition. But in this latter endeavour I wish to fail and so often I furt freely and with relish, and I shall die, or peacefully pickled in furts. This flatulence, though, it brings me agony. And so this morning, before breaking my fast, I take the juice of sweet apples, raspberries, plums and blackberries, strained. I set it upon a slow fire, and add a spoon of honey for every draught, bringing the liquid to a gentle boil. I shall drink her a hearty draught of this with my morning meal, and for the next nine days hence, shall eat only bread made from highly roasted acorns. My supply of acorns is low, perhaps only enough for two loaf. Should I not be able to obtain more in the Nindo period, I shall not worry. Many nettles grow by the roots of the sweet apple trees, and these I shall pull up from the ground dry the roots away from the fire, and grind to a powder to make bread. 2.107 Flatulence does not diminish or abate. I cannot pass an hour without emitting a violent and noxious gas. There is no one else to witness the event, so I feel no shame, but I do feel a perpetual discomfort at the tautened moor, filled with toxic air. Often it is sweet agony. I take a spoonful of mustard seed this morning, then again at midday, 
washed down with good old mead. I shall repeat this dosage again tonight, and tomorrow I shall begin a regimen of milk diet and well-baked wheaten bread, eating small amounts at regular intervals. 2.161 Abdominal distension has increased. I have eaten no nightshades, no aggravating foods, and yet it continues to swell like a drum. It is eventide. I have eaten nothing all day. This is not rare. To eat during daylight is more the rarity. I find I am unable to concentrate after food or drink, and so I fast throughout the daylight hours and will only eat once the sun is set. Today I take two spoonfuls of the juice of holly. Tomorrow I drink it thrice, at intervals throughout the day, and continue for nine days. So, conceptions of bodies. These are highly specific, and anatomical understanding is also highly specific to time and place. If we start from the position that bodies are essentially unknowable, then all understandings will only ever be partial. But Western medicine, since the X-ray, is driven towards this idea of transparency and the capacity of science to increasingly see and thereby know, because seeing and knowing are synonymous in an oculocentric world, the systems and workings of all aspects of the body. I mean, who can say if bodies are ruled by blood, if bodies are ruled by the humours or the elements? or the planets, and in the European Enlightenment there came to be a conception of bodies as machines, with joints like pistons, and in mesmerism bodies were drawn to each other by magnetic forces. So the notion of a body as a series of concentric layers of skin, then muscles, then organs, centrally organised around a circulatory system with the heart at the core and a nervous system with the brain at its core, these two are really Western-specific ideas of what a body is, and they're just modes of perception. And that's not to say that they're wrong. It's not also not to say that they're right. It's just that they're one of many modes of description, which are always going to be fractional. So there are many different conflicting and also overlapping and agreeing and correlating descriptions and interpretations of bodies and health in the Middle Ages. One of these, which I find fascinating to engage with, is the writings of Hildegard von Bingen. Some of you might know her writings, some of you might not. Certainly, I would never tell you that you should know about someone. But Hildegard was a German nun who was alive in the 12th century. She was born just at the end of the 11th, in 1098, and she was a prolific writer and a composer. She also founded a couple of monasteries. Um, her writings cover philosophy, natural history, mysticism. She talks a lot about her visions. Um, she's one of the most renowned Christian mystics, and also her music is really incredible. So go and listen to it. And thank you to the friend who I used to work with in a bookshop who first told me about her in 2011. I am much indebted to you.
So the reason that I'm talking about Hildegard now in this context is in relation to her writings on bodies and health. So it's worth bearing in mind that the humanist construction of individual selfhood, which is discreet from the world, is a recent and culturally specific idea. So in Hildegard's cosmology, as with many thinkers of the time, the micro and the macro are in direct dialogue with each other, and the world is a series of nested spheres. So what's wonderful about a lot of medieval law is the direct relationship between interior body and exterior geography. Uh, Nicholas Culpepper, for example, who maybe you know because he wrote a quite well-known herbal, it's what he's most closely associated with, but he also wrote this other wonderful book uh, in which astrology is directly correlated with illness. So certain planets rule certain illnesses and these planets also rule certain plants, so sickness and cure can be coordinated through the nexus of astral bodies. And, you know, Galileo did astrological readings as well as being a renowned astronomer. So the discrediting of astrology is very recent. I'll talk more on that later. And not everything written at this time has to shift through such vast scales. In medieval lapidary law, which is to say the law of stones, stones can affect the weather, the fate and your gut health. And they don't necessarily have to move through the will of God, interestingly. Um, but for now, let's focus on Hildegard. So Hildegard wrote within the notion of humoral theory, and the humours were also in correlation with the seasons and the elements. So bodies are highly intimate with their geography, and they can affect and be affected by them. But more importantly, they're not essentially distinct from them. So your sickness may be part of a wider wave that is carrying all other surrounding environments, bodies, plants, sentient and non-sentient beings and matter. And it's not so much a matter of mutual contamination so much as the fact that you move together. So Francis Drayson asked me to write a response to their incredible show at Lily Brook last year. Or, I should say in the year 2019, in case you listen to this in the years subsequent to me speaking. So, I wrote a text in response to some of their works, and it's structured around various moments in Hildegard von Bingen's medicinal writings, particularly where she references the gut, and these references shift between scales and architectures. So... One, Hildegard von Bingen. When a person eats, the fine blood vessels that sense the taste distribute it throughout the body. The internal blood vessels, namely those of the liver, the heart, the lungs and the stomach, receive the finer juice from these foods and carry it through the entire body. I have a highly developed taste system through which I navigate this world. My entire skin is covered in taste buds, which become more concentrated in barbels around my mouth. Through these I can taste prey, I can taste environment, I can taste excrement, and I know which way to move. As I move into Piccadilly Circus tube station, 
I can taste layers of grey dirt accumulating at edges of steps. On prickly plush of the underground seats, I taste sweat of countless, nameless strangers, bisected by a single long red hair, bulbous at one end where it once attached a head. Everything I touch, I taste. I am eating everything. I am unable to filter it out. It brushes against skin and moves into my digestive tract, a solid, indigestible, lumpen mass hardening in my stomach. Some days I am overwhelmed by taste and I cannot leave the bed, but as I roll around in my sheets I taste my own body and I am disgusted and I do not know how to shut it out, how to sever my connection to the world. I must always be touching something, and so I'm always tasting, always eating, always absorbing a constant horrific intake which builds up in a toxic load. I carry this in my tissues, in the soft parts, like piles of soil in silken bags. Two, Hildegard von Bingen. The stomach has been created in the human body for the purpose of absorbing and digesting all foods. It is tough and somewhat wrinkled on the inside, so that it can retain food for digestion and not let it slip away too quickly in the stool. In the same way, the bricklayer roughens the stone so that it will take on the mortar and hold it tight, and it will not run apart and fall on the earth. Everything slows and stagnates in your gut. You can feel it sitting there, a hardening rock of shit in your colon, a compound mass of any number of meals you've eaten over the past week. Perhaps it is longer. Who knows how long this shit has been forming? There might be tiny particles, flakes of desiccated shit, from the first solid meal you ate, gently shedding into this compound mass. Your guts moulded and shaped, kneaded the ball of chyme into a cloacal lump, its outside desiccating like greying clay. It may harden to stone and, too wide to pass through the rectum and out of the gentle, silken pucker of tender anus, it may stay there forever. Blockage, stoppage, stuck. Lying down, the stuffed rope of large intestine stretches around your abdomen. You can feel the solid mass of shit compiling in your colon, no doubt taut with the tension of shielding your organs from this fetid mass. And you prod it through your skin and layers of membranes. You prod it in disgust, wishing you could claw out the contents, wishing you could claw out the intestines themselves become a clean through-pipe from mouth to anus. Your guts, their functioning, the mysterious bloatings and gripings and pains and passages, they are all unknowable to you, untraceable and unquantifiable. Why does constipation feel so immoral? You will ask yourself. The sense of being poisoned by your own digestive system, a poison spreading from the organs to your soul. Three, Hildegard von Bingen. Therefore they curdle in the stomach, 
become hard and mouldy, so that they spread slime in the stomach. Like a rotting manure pile, they send out bad fluids and harmful, terrible-smelling fumes throughout the whole body, like when green or wet wood burns an evil smoke and circulates everywhere in the body. You will abuse laxative for five years, drawn to the illusion of control it supplied. Master of the alimentary canal, able to wholly monitor and control input and output. Your system of digestion is vast, meters long, twisted, bended and convoluted ropes of puffy intestines stuffed with food. Ingested matter will become a bolus formed of saliva and food, then pass into the stomach and be churned into a chyme, which passes into the small intestine where nutrients will be absorbed, and the remaining blend of chyme and chyle will move to the colon, where water will be sapped until it becomes excrement, which is held in the rectum until it passes out of the anus as a solid stool. But, abusing laxatives for five years, this process of digestion and absorption, transformation and incorporation, has been partial at best. Food would rush through your system at such a pace that it was easily recognisable as its original foodstuff once it left your body again, all suspended in a slimy liquid, waters drawn from tissues, spinach leaves, chunks of chewed up egg white, the grainy pulp of porridge, all rush through and out, landing in the toilet bowl like so much vomit barely acknowledging their sojourn in the ileum, the duodenum, the colon. It felt clean, matter passing through you cleanly. It had been a relief to eat and then, a matter of mere hours later, feel the familiar painful clench of colonic spasming, followed by a mucosal drool as bowel contents were voided. Food passed through indiscriminately and barely digested. And so you were able to easily trace each bowel movement to a specific meal. Input. Output. When you came off laxatives, the first time you had a solid bowel movement was truly horrific, for you passed from a transparent to an opaque system of functioning, and output could not be directly correlated with input. Purus. Purgare. Purgier. Purge. The word derived from the Latin to purify, to rid the body of that which would contaminate it. You yearn to feel pure and clean and empty and hollow, a perfect vessel for moral sanctity. Now that food is inscribed upon your body in pads of fat, your flesh no longer bears testament to the internal slime lurking in your intestines, your brain, your tissues, the slime that is your chaotic and constipated inability to process the world. 4. Hildegard von Bingen the food which provides growth to human tissues is digested in the first night after consumption. Food providing strength for the intestines is assimilated on the first day after consumption. The food which contributes energy to the liver is digested on the second day. Foods invigorating the spleen are digested on the third day. But the food nourishing heart and blood finishes its digestion on the tenth day because heart and blood rely on almost the same energy. They had decided to install a grill across the two arches under the bridge, perhaps to stop people swimming through. A nameless they had decided. Now, all of the waste thrown into the canal, 
all of the waste that found itself in the canal was trapped and built up in an aggregate mass. Yellowing plastic milk bottles and bundled up soiled nappies and leaves and cigarette butts and other ubiquitous waste material, probably some feathers, definitely some leaves, and you know those striped plastic bags and a flourishing microbiome and the skeletal remains of an otter, all mashed together into a single body, limbs of trees protruding awkwardly, a compounded, impacted lump of heavy time. They had done this. Okay, so now we move over to the next act of It Is Proven. Distension has decreased, though occasional cracks do hinder my daily activities. I take a little tansy and reduce it to a fine powder. This I take with white wine to remove the pain. 2.1 nin nin. I take some tansy and southernwood, boil together and eat well with salt. I eat nothing else this day. Agonies across the moor continue to attend me. 2.265 For two days now, I've been in the grip of an unease in the moor, but I cannot locate as either hunger or sickness. At once, I focus upon this pain, and it eludes me in its origin. I try eating, and it neither abates nor increases. I try avoiding food, and the same conclusion arises. Verily, it remind me of the time immediately after I ceased heavy dosing of laxative, and I became convinced that this malaise was due to auto-intoxication, the vapours of my shit slowly poisoning me. Mayhap this is happening now. I take a pint of the juice of fennel and boil it with a pint of clarified honey. This morn I take a spoonful, abstaining from any other food or drink. And I shall repeat again before the day is spent. The next nin day shall be spent thus. 2.2 nin zero. The contents of the stomach sit heavy and unmoving, perhaps slowly desiccating and hardening. Induration. I must purge before the chyme and chyle turn into a solid and immovable rock that threatens not only my digestion, but my very existence. The head feels quite as full as the gut. I shall take three spoonfuls of the juice of betony for three days hence. Upon completion, I shall place in the nostril the feather tips of a wing, its irritation proving a good emetic for head and more. 2.326 
As October crumples and folds into the beginnings of a winter, I take precautionary measures, knowing what will come. Before All Hallows' Eve, I take treacle, a quart of red wine, a pennyworth of mustard, three pennyworth of aloes, and boil together. This I store in a vessel, in preparation for the time of winter. The flesh is weak, and cannot warm itself, and the guts fail. It is no dread. Winter be the time I fall apart. Now, the weather has taken a turn, and so too has the complexion. The November wind blows harsh and chills the marrow. It chills the stomach. As consequence, the gut has quite ceased to move for some days, the food being rejected and the bowels confined. I have begun to take this liquid preparation in the morning while fasting, two spoonfuls. Else, take higher pennyworth of fennel and boil it in clarified honey, using the leaves which are superior to the seed. When my present cordial runs out, I shall begin on this preparation. 2.341 The stoppage in the guts has shifted lower a leaden weight moving from stomach to intestine. I find myself again in the position of being unable to pass stool, feeling neither colonic spasming nor the ability to force any excrement to emerge, much as I might will or strain. I shall tell you my regimen. I take the roots of Gladwin, the inner bark of the elder and the juice of houseleek. These I pound well in a mortar and mix with old ale. I strain these through a cloth and drink it while fasting. In not one hour the blockage lifts. I feel a familiar and comforting discomfort around the kidneys, and lo, I pass a significant quantity of small, hardened pellets, like the droppings of a rabbit. 2.455 I am not ashamed of my flatulence. It is proof that I am not a woman or I am disobedient to womanly ways. It is not ladylike to pass wind. As the sun begins to set on this day, I take wild carrot seed and bind it into pills using honey. Tomorrow, I shall take four at daybreak, and again very night, and repeat for three days. 2.457 The spring does usually bring a renewed appetite and yet the stomach feels the flat and grey of a lack of hunger. I see food in abundance and cannot crave it. I crave the craving. I will boil centauri in spring water and drink it in spoonfuls. For three days I shall fast and pray that hunger returns. 2.467 I cannot stand it. Again, I am struck with induration and solidification of the colon. A rock of shit resides in me. I feel the thickened rope curling around the abdomen, framing the guts in its immobility. I remember a time as a child when I could not pass stool for some days. A hardened bazaar of shit lodged in the rectum and watery stool would pass around it. I fouled my underwear. I lay in bed in pain and yet to strain on the toilet, 
While the shit was lodged, it caused me agony. The memory of these days haunt me still, and I fear constipation above all else. And so I take the roots of Gladwin, and pound them as I would garlic, with good old ale. I let it stand aside a space of time, then strain, and warm as a potion. I shall take again this eventide before sleep, for it is a proven laxative. 2.475 If the stomach would be still, then perhaps the mood would improve. I feel a perpetual disaise. From a humoral imbalance, it is no dread. This disaise overtakes the mind, that I am unable to focus on anything save the bodily disorder and disobedience. Today, this fleshly unrest manifested in a swelling of the stomach. I feel the tightening of the flesh and I loathe it. I will the flesh to do otherwise and it does not obey. I cannot fathom it. Arm may bend upon my maestry, and yet stomach moves not. It will not inflate or deflate, move or stop. An unwieldy best it is. With so much agency, I wonder that I should call it my own. I take the way of goat milk and pound the herbs called ramsons, which you may call wild garlic or bear's garlic. These two I mix together in strain, and this liquid shall be my only drink for three days hence. be nice to provide a bibliography or a reading list of sorts I always think that sharing research is quite a nice thing to do <laughs> so this is not extensive or exhaustive most of the books in some way relate to either plant or lapidary which is to say stone medicine from the medieval to the renaissance era some are primary sources which is to say the original text written at that time like the medieval text some are secondary sources which is to say people writing essays that string together several of these or writing essays which are describing these you know largely contemporary or later writers writing on these original sources so i often start from these secondary sources and then use their bibliography or the text they reference to find the primary sources which is common to a lot of people but just as an aside it's not like i just suddenly out of nowhere am aware of the book of secrets of albertus magnus like I had to read that somewhere before I knew that that book existed. But anyway, this book list, some of them are just good almanacs and they're really a varied mix of medicinal text and practices from antiquity to the Renaissance. So, you know, not being ambitious in my remit, but it's just a fractional, it's not totalizing. Think of this as a series of very periscopic insights, not like a broad overview of anything where you would read these and suddenly you would understand the history of medicine i don't understand the history of medicine can we understand the history of medicine histories i would say anyway the first book is the physicians of midfi which is what it is proven was based on um it contains lots of cures for lots of things I focused upon gut-related cures, but the, really there is everything in that. There's wounds, there's headaches, 
that's kidney problems, that's liver problems. Um, it's not actually organized in any way, which is why it's really fascinating to respond to and produce a narrative from. It's because it's just a list of numerical cures with headings about what each cure is. So if you want to find something, you really just have to go through it all. And there are multiple cures for the same illness, which demonstrates the fact of it being a compendium of cure. So, I mean, you know, the fact that there's 20 different, completely different laxatives, you know, take an egg and scoop out the white and then, then the next one is like, go and harvest buckthorn. And the translation of this text for the version that I've got is by Terry Breverton. Um, it was done in the early 20th century and it contains some explanatory footnotes attempting to redeem or explain the text through, at the time, contemporary values, medicine or understanding, which is always fascinating because it demonstrates how Western allopathic medicine tends to understand itself as having finally arrived at the truth, which clearly reading now, something which is almost 100 years old, is quite funny. The next book, one that I briefly mentioned earlier, is The Book of Secrets of Albertus Magnus. I love this book. It's not very long. You could read it in a gentle afternoon if you're a person who reads for a few hours straight. Not everyone is, and that's also good. Everyone reads in a different way. Some people don't read at all. All are valid. But you can read this cover to cover in that it's very enjoyable to read. And it's organised by herbs, stones, beast, planets, and marvels of the world. Marvels of the world, friends. It's hard to say that this book is medicinal, per se, because it contains cures for sickness, but it also contains prescriptions for stones, which will give you foresight. Um, the marvels of the world section, to explain that, which I'm going to say again, marvels of the world. It's a section that's a really broad overview of other recipes or recipes which don't really necessarily fit into the other categories because you're not necessarily talking about one thing. It's, some of them are mixes of animal and vegetable and mineral. Um, and some of them are just other things that aren't necessarily cure. For example, there's a recipe for invisible ink that can only be read at night. How to make someone appear to have three heads. How to make someone appear to be headless. Oh, and it also contains the invaluable wisdom that if any man shall have eels in a wine vessel, and they suffer to die in it, if any man drink of it, he shall abhor wine for a year, and by chance evermore. So, essentially the upshot is if you find dead eels in your wine, you might be put off wine, which I feel like Albertus, at that point, really didn't need to be stated in terms which make it sound like a revelation. Uh, Nicholas Culpepper, Astrological Judgment of Diseases from the Decumbrature of the Sick. So, I referenced this earlier, but I actually didn't give the name, which is fairly useless, until you reach this moment. And you may or may not be familiar with Nicholas Culpepper's Culpepper's Complete Herbal. And no issue with either. I'm certainly not one of those people who functions with the assumption of a singular shared knowledge which usually just means a way to uphold a Eurocentric canon of literature or art, and means a shaming or marginalising of practices that fall outside of this or beyond this, thinking, writing and making that exists beyond this extremely narrow purview is somehow 
subordinate or needs to be recuperated within it. So anyway, Nicholas Culpepper is most widely known for this herbal, but he also wrote this incredible book, it's quite short, um, which talks about astrological interventions in health. It's quite useful to remember, as I said earlier, that astrology was part of mainstream science and philosophy in the West until comparatively recently, and its discrediting is actually quite recent. And I will say that Albertus Magnus' book, you know, it is a book that, like I said, you could sit and read it like you would a novel. This book is quite dense and dry. It's more of a reference text. But it's organised first astrologically and then by disease. So it's quite easy to dip into and out of, depending on your research, if that's why you're reading it. Okay, the next book, Anne van Arstel. Medieval Herbal Remedies, the Old English Herbarium, and Anglo-Saxon Recipes. Again, another translated compendium, organised by plant rather than illness, as with many of these texts. For some reason, contains a ridiculous number of cures for snake bites. I think every other page makes a reference to a cure for them. Claude Lucuto, a lapidary of sacred stones, their magical and medicinal powers based on the earliest sources. This is a really wonderful secondary source. And it's simply an alphabetized compendium of stone and lapidary healing from medieval and ancient sources. And some of the stones are still extant in contemporary Western taxonomies. Some don't directly translate, such as the incredibly beautiful Linsurium or Ligurius, which, according to its legend, is produced from lynx urine and a sort of earth that the lynx buries his piss under. And a lot, but not all of the entries, list the original source or sources of their information. It's a lot of Pliny, for example. Nicholas Everett, The Alphabet of Garlin. This book is one of those wonderful parallel text translations of a primary source. So on the recto page it has the Latin original, and on the verso it has the English translation, contemporary English. Um, Slightly confusing fact about this text is that it has absolutely nothing to do with Galen, as you may know, or not, that's fine, but the Roman physician who lived in the 2nd century AD, he isn't nowhere near this. In fact, this is a pharmacological text whose origins are slightly mysterious as the time and place that it was originally produced are not fully known, though it is possibly believed to be Greek and earlier than Galen and named later. But the earliest extant version of the manuscript is written in Latin, and it's from the 7th century AD. And this version of the book, it has a very lengthy introduction, and it also has some wonderful facsimile pages of the manuscript itself, which is beautifully illustrated. Um, they're in black and white, but you can still get the idea. And then it has this alphabetized pharmacopoeia of cure. Some of it's plant, some of it's mineral, some of it's animal, but it isn't organised taxonomically under these principles. And while there are many familiar entries, such as aloe, they're also extremely ambiguous and weird ones, such as alcimonium, whose entry reads, Alcimonium has two types, one that seems dry and the other liquid. Some say that both are derived from the sap of a tree which grows in Judea and other places, yet others affirm that it is a greasy substance found in lagoons and which is very gluey and coagulates to float upon the surface of swamp waters. And so it goes on describing something extremely vague and indiscernible that seems to come from everywhere and nowhere and exist in all forms. Ibn Sinna, an 
in brackets, I'm putting Avicenna, but I'll get to that. The canon of medicine. Arabic and Persian medicine and science had an enormous impact on medieval culture in the West, and it's largely responsible for the secularization of medicine, the Enlightenment, and rationalist science in Western Europe. So this book is one among many that are important and often under-acknowledged in the bizarre rhetoric that Western Europe has produced for itself, and in believing itself to be and to have always been the pinnacle of human thought and other hubristic bullshit. So Ibn Sina was a Persian polymath, and he wrote literally everything. I mean, philosophy, theology, mathematics, astrology, astronomy, and he was living around 980 to 1040 AD. But unfortunately, if you're looking for his work in English, you're more likely to find it under the Latinate name Avicenna, which is a Latin corruption of the name, which is why I mentioned that in the title, as it's harder to find his work under Ibn Sina. I mean, this happened all the time. It's why the Arabic author Yahya ibn Sarafian is referred to as Serapian the Elder, and his most famous treatise is referred to as Pandectai. It's why Confucius is called Confucius and not his Chinese name of Kung Fu Tzu. But this Latinization of a names is a practice which is then eclipsed by the Victorian tendency to name manuscripts after the European person who stole them rather than the original author, like the Ebus papyrus. So that's great. Um, so anyway, neither of these practices are in any way explicable or redeemable, but it's important to state that to this day, Ibn Sina is known as Avicenna. So as my work is quite specific to Europe, I can talk about Ibn Sina in reference to his impact in the West, but that's not to say that the most important aspect of his enormous legacy is that he played a huge role in the West. Um, because the books were written in Persian and embedded within Islamic cosmology, and they've held an equally enormous impact in the Islamic world and the Middle East, it's simply that I don't think it's appropriate for me to talk about worlds that I'm not a part of, as though I could fully understand them. So I'm going to stay in my lane. Um, and... Ibn Sina's influence on Western thinkers is enormous, and this book, The Canon of Medicine, was widely used as the standard medical textbook in Europe until the 18th century. I mean, it's quite expensive to get hold of a copy if you don't have access to a library. Um, I mean, it's upward of £80, but I mean, it's a big tome, you know. So if you want to dip into it or get a taste of it, then uh, Lale Bactia, um, who's translated one version of this, also produced a book called Avicenna on healthy living, exercising, massaging, bathing, eating, drinking, sleeping and treating fatigue, which is much slimmer and gives you a kind of a taster of a very specific purview of his writings. Okay, Monica H. Green, who's the editor and translator of The Trotula, an English translation of the medieval compendium of women's medicine. So this is a very interesting book. It was produced at a time and a place where woman was essentially referring to anyone assigned female at birth. It's a cis binary definition of this. So a more accurate title of this book would be a compendium of gynecological medicine, as a lot of the cure is gynecological. But as a note about gender in general, in a lot, if not all of these texts, health and bodies are arranged almost primarily through a binary gender and sex definition and female as they are defined bodies are seen as essentially different in all aspects from men and this dates back 
to antiquity and Greek medicine when women were believed to be cold and moist and men were believed to be hot and dry. There's a wonderful Anne Carson essay on this called Putting Her in Her Place, Dirt and Desire in Ancient Greece. But, um, so, in a lot of them, they will give a cure for a man and then a cure for a woman. Or they'll just give a cure for a man. A lot of them are just very male-oriented. Or they will give a cure for both, but write it through a man, because obviously a man is the default body. Um, but what's interesting about this text is that for a long time it was thought to have been produced by one author, this mysterious female physician, Trotula. Uh, but the researcher and translator, Monica H. Green, who originally translated this in 2001, reveals that it's in fact three separate texts that are brought together and the blurb reads, these three works reflect the synthesis of indigenous practices of southern Italians with new theories, practices and medicinal substances coming out of the Arabic world. And the version that I have is not the parallel translation with the original medieval Latin text facing the translation, but this is also available. I just think I didn't buy it because it was hardcover and more expensive and, you know, I don't speak Latin, but I do really love parallel texts. The Peterborough Lapidary. The version I have of this book is edited by Francis Young, and it's a parallel text, another one, with the Middle English in one column and the Contemporary English alongside. You may have noticed I'm kind of obsessed with parallel translation texts, even though most of the time they're in Latin or Old French or Ancient Greek, and I speak not these languages. But somehow their presence does feel important, as though it gives you this proximity to the author and to the original language. Um, but this text, the Peterborough Lapidary, is Middle English, which is more easily discernible, and I am trying to learn it fluently right now. So yes, friends, all the thorns and yogs abounding. I think this may be my favourite book in here, or maybe it's joint with Albertus Magnus. So it draws a lot on Isidore of Seville, also, ugh, I should mention that book. Okay, I'm going to add that to the list. This list is getting ridiculously long. It's going on here. Isidore of Seville, Etymologies, very good lapidary text alongside other things, but I'm not going to tell you about it. Just look it up if that is of interest. Back to the Peterborough lapidary. It's organised alphabetically by stone, and it's like a more exhaustive and extensive Albertus Magnus, uh, but it's much more rooted in medicinal cures, whereas Magnus is much more to do with stones and fate in the wider world, and then health kind of tangentially comes into it. Um, so in the Peterborough Lapidary, for example, the entry for Beryl reads that he allows a man to bear suffering, also he gives good understanding, and is good against the sickness of the liver, and also retching and vomiting. And all of the stones are gendered, interestingly, and gendered as male. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's interesting and not incidental. Hildegard. Von Bingen, that is. Obviously, I talked about Hildegard in a work that I read to you very briefly. And as with so many writers at the time, Hildegard combined pragmatic cure with mysticism and astrology with gut health. So bodies are ruled by micro and macro, and health is very much a nested sphere. So here are some books which are worth reading. Um, Hildegard von Binger's Physica, it's an almanac of cures based on plants and animals, and it's organised as such. Um, 
Also, if you want to read just the plants, then Beacon Press have produced a book called Hildegard's Healing Plants, which is the same writings, it's just only the plant section. And I don't know, if you're looking to get this as a gift for someone, this is quite a nice book, it's quite well laid out, it's got a nice cover and it's got nice illustrations in it. The version I have of Hildegard's Physica is, I don't know, the cover isn't as nice. Anyway. Secrets of God, Writings of Hildegard von Bingen. It's a translation of some of her writings by Sabina Flanagan, and crucially, it contains Causes and Cures, which is a really valuable body of writings on healthcare and where all the citations in my text are drawn for. Another secondary source that's quite interesting and written in the 80s is Hildegard of Bingen's Medicine, and it's written by Dr. Wigard Strello and Gottfried Herzer. Uh, it was written in the 80s and it sparked a lot of the cultural interest in her writings on health and was originally written in German and worked from the original manuscripts rather than the translations that have been published subsequently. So what vexed me at first is that it refers to manuscripts which have been retitled since their translations. So just a heads up that there may be some references which you don't recognise. And finally, another secondary source, which is quite dry but interesting, is Rooted in Earth, Rooted in the Sky, Hildegard of Bingen and Premodern Medicine by Victoria Sweet. Which, if you are interested in histories of botanical medicine, as so many of us are, in the now of 2020, just know that one of the chapters is called Gardener of the Body. Okay, finally, just a few secondary sources... If you're not looking to read something which is essentially a dictionary of cures and are looking for something with more of a narrative, you know, someone to guide you through something gently, or you're just looking to read something out of general interest and not for specific research reasons. The Expressiveness of the Body and the Divergence of Greek and Chinese Medicine by Shigehisa Kuriyama. This book is frankly amazing. Uh, it really shines a light on how the Western attempt to recuperate, absorb and understand Chinese medicine through their own narrow bandwidth completely misses the fact that this knowledge practice is based on an entirely different paradigm of world building and how Western notions of anatomy, what the body is and how it functions claim or don't even claim, they just believe themselves hubristically to be universal uh, but obviously they're not, they're highly specific. Um, and this book is really great at elaborating on the history of this and the chapter on pulse and chemo is particularly good. Catherine Knight, Secrets of the 17th Century Medicine Cabinet. Oh God, this book gives me nightmares every time I look at the cover. And in fact, I'm not even listing its full title if you look for this book, which horrifically is How Shakespeare Cleaned His Teeth and Cromwell Treated His Warts, colon, Secrets of the 17th Century Medicine Cabinet. I don't know, but I have this horrible suspicion that the original title of this manuscript was Secrets of the 17th Century Medicine Cabinet, and then the publishers thought, no, not snappy enough 
I mean, mainstream publishing and manuscript rights, oh God, in instances like this, it honestly makes me just anxious thinking about them. There seems to be this thing that occasionally happens where someone, some gross someone in HarperCollins or wherever, is like, I know, let's take your work of serious and ponderous research and try and rebrand this as a book to go in the humour section. This also happened with Brian Dillon's book on hypochondriacs, which is really wonderful. And the first time around, it had this really nice cover, which is black and white. It was very tasteful. I mean, what is taste? But it's a black and white photo of Andy Warhol and red typeface on it. And then it was reprinted with a new title and this awful caricature art, which made it seem like one of those books that, you know, are sold around Christmas time is something to give to someone you don't really know as a secret Santa present. Anyway, this book, this Catherine Knight book, I mean, and the Brian Dillon book, but that's for another topic for another day. This Catherine Knight book, it's really good. Most of the author's research is drawn from manuscripts held in the Welcome Library, a lot of them home receipt or recipe books in which food and medicine coalesce. And it's also really well written. It's really nice. The cover makes me want to vomit. Passions and Tempers by Noga Arika. If you want to know about the history of humoral theory, read this. It's good. I don't really know what else to say. It's really good. I enjoyed reading it. It's nicely written. It's not too long, but it's not too short. It's a good medium length book. Also, bonus points, has a nicer cover. So, Joe Wheeler, Renaissance Secrets, Recipes and Formulas. I chose this book not because it sits within the same family as the other books. Mostly I chose this because it's actually really quite general and quite different in mood. So if you're not looking for something really specific, then this is quite a nice book to peruse. And at the opposite end of the scale from the Catherine Knight Cromwell Warts debacle of a cover completely undermining the integrity and in-depth research of the manuscript held within its pages. This book kind of looks a lot more, I don't know, serious and ponderous than it is, I guess. I mean, it's a really beautiful book. I don't know, I'd be happy to get this book. It's produced by the V&A, it's hardcover, and it has this really nice monochrome aesthetic. There's a Celtic uh, calligraphy pattern in grey and then a red stamp on it. It's it's really nice. It's an odd dimension as well. It's very tall and thin, which makes it really pretty but kind of weird to read. And like I said, it's not an exhaustive resource. It's just a nice book to browse. Essentially, it kind of needs to swap covers with Catherine Knight's book. Or actually, nothing needs to swap covers with Catherine Knight's book. That cover just needs to be burned. Burned and forgotten about, erased from memory. But anyway, this book is structured by example and it's organized around specific objects in the V&A collection. And it's not just talking about medicine, it's also talking about recipes for ink and perfume and talismans. So that's really nice. It's mostly just a variety of Renaissance recipes. And like I said, the main reason I'm including this book is that everything else It's quite dense and heavy and very specific in its remit. And maybe you just want something to browse, something to just kind of dip into, I don't know, some 
Renaissance thinking. Uh, if you don't really have a specific framework or an area of research, or you're just bored and you want to read a bizarrely dimensioned book. And sometimes it's nice to just read something without thinking, how can I recuperate this into my work? And if you're an artist or a writer, I think that's a really important exercise to carry out. Not just for yourself and for your own enjoyment and relaxation. Because, you know, otherwise you just end up consuming culture like Pac-Man, just propelling yourself through ingestion. But I mean, also, this is important to underline that this is how the entitlement of white Eurocentrism ends up with people appropriating knowledges from cultures not their own, often fetishizing folk and indigenous knowledge because they read something and they're like, ooh, that's interesting, I must make work about that. You know, you don't actually have to regurgitate everything that you read and make it into your work. Definitely don't only read inside the Western canon. I mean, that's really important that you don't do that. But just don't try and assimilate other knowledges and practices into your own work. Jesus. Gastrodinia. I bruise chamomile and boil in a pint of wine till reduced by half. 2.485. Gastrodinia. I take wild carrots and cover with water and leave to infuse. I use the water as a drink for my day. 2.64 nin. Again, I am met by the unruly swelling of the stomach, extending beyond the waistband of my denim. I must loosen my jean and walk around my home with unbuttoned trouser. In such a state of discomfort, I take the roots of fennel and the roots of ash and pound well, tempering with wine and honey. The expressed liquor shall be my drink from now until the day is closed. 2.74 nin. Gastrodinia. I take mugwort, plantain and red nettle. This I boil in goat's whey, strained through linen and administer to myself. 2.762 I worry that my pains indicate a wider illness, perhaps a sickness more serious than distempers. Wary am I to admit true sickness. My death is something unfathomable to me, a thing impossible, a thing that may never pass. I do not seek diagnosis. I will ax no one else. No one might know. But tonight, before bed, I shall bruise violets and apply them to the eyebrows. If I sleep, I shall live. And if not, 2.765. After much stoppage, excrement now runs out of me like a torrent. More fluid than solid. A translucent yellow that could be mistaken for piss if it was not pouring from the rectum. A river it is, and it burns the arsehole something special. The yolk of seven eggs. Twice as much of clarified honey. The middle of a wheaten loaf, reduced to fine crumbs, and a pennyworth of powdered pepper, all boiled together and eaten warm. This shall be my curie. 2.76 nin. I return to a stagnation of the colon. 
Thus, I take small beer, unsalted butter and wheat bran, boil well and strain. This I pour into a bladder, into which I insert a quill, then tie up the bladder around it. This quill I pass gently into the rectum, the head being lower than the pelvis, and I force the fluid into the body, then write myself as quickly as possible. Results follow quickly, though only a small amount of shit produced, and what pours out of me is mostly what I poured in. the final point but I mean I'm not going to provide you with an ending or any kind of conclusion because I don't really want to create something which feels concluded or ended when this could be endless or endlessly cyclical but if that feels unresolved to you and you seek resolution then by all means do Go back, listen again, and just stop at some point that feels like a logical or an illogical conclusion. And then, once this is drawn to a close, go and make yourself a refreshing cordial of plants or a gentle herbal preparation, and do make sure that it is gentle. And go and take care of your guts and your innards, the flesh and the maw and the microbiome, Take good care of yourself and the non-cells that live within you.